So your priorities, priorities, do you have your priorities right? They so easily get off kilter. It's always necessary to ask that question of ourselves, are our priorities straight? And so my, my favorite scene in that delightful movie, Elf, I'm sure you watched it maybe once, maybe 20 times over Christmas. Um, and so it was when, when Buddy, you know, he's smiling at that cranky boss of his, arguing over whether that department store room was the North Pole or not, and the boss looks at him just frustrated and goes, why are you smiling? And Buddy just says, well, smiling's my favorite. He goes, well, make work your favorite, make work your favorite. And I may use that line on occasion around my house when certain things need to be done, when work is not our favorite. But priorities, you know, and turns out in Elf, smiling was a big priority. So life is about our priorities and you can't really read or listen to any sort of business book or self-help book or vision book or speech without hearing about priorities, rules, guidelines for a significant life. And there, there's a lot of them. There's a lot that comes at us about how to have a significant life. So how well are you doing with your priorities? Do you have them clear? Are we thoughtful about them? So in this section of Luke, it's, it's a unique section. I love this section of Luke. It's a big section both in its overall arrangement, it's unique, and also there's a number of stories that you love that are unique to Luke that are in this section we're looking at. And so it's Jesus's travel narrative or the journey to Jerusalem. And it goes all the way from 951 to 1928, when Jesus in his triumphal entry enters into Jerusalem. It's this journey to Jerusalem, that's the form in which it is given to us. And so one commentator asks, and I mentioned this to you already, but I just really like it. it he goes, why does Luke include such a long section? Um, by Jesus's transfiguration, when the father says, he's my son, I mean, we know everything. Like we know who he is, and he's proven that by his works. We know he's God's son come to redeem sinners, so why not go straight to Jerusalem and the cross and accomplish redemption now? Why the long section, another year of ministry? And the simple reason is that the disciples have so much to learn. And I see myself there. They need more discipling, more preparing to grow as followers and leaders in Jesus' church. And so he takes them on this long, windy road, like he takes you on a long, windy, convoluted road. He's focusing on his teaching, not so much miracles, He's training them in the way of the cross. It's a pathway, and it's not efficient, but it is effective. And it's just like for us, he's training them in the right discipleship priorities. And so sometimes we hear it's not the destination, it's, 
It's the journey. And I, I really do like the phrase. I, I kind of need it. Smell the roses, enjoy the ride, seize the day. It's all good because we can't just blaze through things and not live in the moment, not appreciate what good gifts God's given us yet. At the same time, Jesus shows that the destination shapes the journey. One commentator says it this way, it is the destination that makes sense of the journey. And and you can't make sense of your life, really, without knowing that there's a cross at the end of the journey. And so 951 sets the stage. That's the beginning of the travel narrative. It's a wonderful verse, and I want it to be one that you appreciate a whole lot. Jesus says when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we see in there this heart commitment from Jesus, this tenacious commitment to redeem you, come what may. He knows a cross lies at the end. And he knows it's going to be dreadfully painful. He will substitute himself under God's infinite judgment for us. And yet he sets his face like flint and heads there. And whereas I'd be finding a way to get out of that, Jesus zeroes in for deep love for you And that verse needs to move us. And furthermore, that verse needs to mold our perspective on our earthly pilgrimage as Jesus' disciples. You and me, we're in his school. We're being trained by him. We're learning to lay our lives down for love of God and love of others. And that pathway is not easy. But because of God's character... And the way he's designed us, it's the pathway of human flourishing. That we find ourselves giving ourselves away. And so today we finish this subunit of the journey. So this subunit is 951 to 1024. And so we're going to finish it. It's all about this, this discipleship. And it begins with two discipleship failures. <laughs> abysmal failures. One is, let's burn up the village that rejected you. The other is, Jesus, I wanna follow you, but I have these other things that I need to do first. Two discipleship failures. But then it moves to an incredible discipleship success when the 72 return to Jesus, thrilled and say, even demons submit to us in your name. So let's read God's word together. 17, 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this good word endures forever. And so three points, the disciples' power, the disciples' priorities, and the disciples' privileges, the disciples' power. So the 72, they return from this short-term mission trip. They've been healing sick people. They've been casting demons out of people. And they've been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he didn't expressly charge them to cast demons out of people. He did that when he sent out the 12. But evidently it was included in their charge because they come back elated and also surprised. Like above and beyond what they could ever have asked, uh, they cast out demons. And... So you recall what we said last week about even that number 72 and 70. It's meant to symbolize the whole church on mission to the whole world. All of us, each of us. It's not the equivalency, you see, between the 72 and the 12. It's meant to say it's not just restricted to the 12, but it's even more than that. It's It's a mission that's for the whole church in different ways, in a variety of ways, multiple ways to the whole world. As one author says, the Christian without a missionary heart is an anomaly, it just doesn't exist. And we see that played out here. They're thrilled by what they were able to do. So the 72 disciples return to Jesus overjoyed. They report, this report is unique to Luke and I just see this group of men, you know, just so excited, they're like, children really, eager to report to Jesus the overwhelming success of their kingdom work, eager to report the kingdom power that operated through them, eager to give credit to Jesus because they only did it in his name. I mean, it's just wonderful reunion. And we look at that and we say, well, we're mindful that any success against the evil one is only by Jesus's power. It's in Jesus's name every day for us. And so they got to represent Jesus in the lives of hurting people. They got to heal sick people and cast demons out of enslaved people. They got to undo some of the misery of this fallen world, the misery of this devil-inflicted world. And, And even more since those acts of healing and exorcism are really signs pointing to the greatest release 
They got to preach the gospel of the kingdom, the arrival of the true king, finally, the one you hoped and dreamed for, that you wondered if he would ever really come, that you got to say that he's here. He's in this broken, sinful world, and people can receive the message and enter a relationship with the king and have their sins forgiven. They got to preach that and see people receive that. Lives are stored. And so we look at that and we say, what could be better than that? What could be a higher priority than that? And I look at that and say, does anything give me more joy than that? And they get to do all that and they are overwhelmed by it. And I think of that famous missionary C.T. Studd, middle of the 19th century, I believe. Well, his father got converted before he did. And he got converted through the preaching of D.L. Moody, that famous preacher. And so Mr. Studd was this rich guy, powerful man, and he had a ton of hobbies. And he liked racing and shooting and hunting and theater and balls. That's what he liked to do. It's a good list. And so all these entertainments he gave his heart to, and so he goes up to Moody, he goes, okay, Moody, I want to be straight with you. Now I'm a Christian, and I like doing all these things. Like, do I have to give them all up? And Moody looks at Mr. Studd, and he says this, well, you were straight with me, I'm going to be straight with you. And he essentially says a number of things, he essentially says, yeah, they're all, most of them are fine, whatever. But look, you have all kinds of people you love. You are now a saved man. And once God uses you to save some of those people you love, you're not gonna care a whole lot about those other things. First things first, Mr. Stud. So Jesus affirms his disciples' labors. He celebrates their success. He goes, he looks at them as they come to him, reporting on the success they've had. He goes, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I mean, did he see a vision at that moment? Did, is he just speaking figuratively? We, we can't be sure in what way Jesus is speaking. But the sense is, what Jesus is saying is that in, in your ministry, in what you just did, in that preaching in those little bitty villages that nobody cares about, in being useful in hurting people's lives, in casting demons out of some deranged, psychotic people, as you did that, I saw Satan himself, the general of all these demons, I saw him falling. I see those as signs and anticipations and precursors to his final full defeat on that great day. You just pushed back the kingdom of darkness. Rome might not pay any attention to you because those villages don't, have much power in the world. But what I see is the prince of darkness himself is falling. See, with Jesus is coming, his earthly ministry, especially his cross and his resurrection, Satan falls. He, he's cast down, his work is destroyed. 
and with the labors of Jesus' disciples in his name, you and I even, as we extend his kingdom of grace, Satan keeps falling. His power keeps being undone. It might not look like much, but in the way Jesus sees things, Satan's falling. And sometimes it's like lightning. And like lightning is a great description that suggests that the victories over Satan are sometimes mind-boggling to us and completely unexpected, surprising even, because we know ourselves to be weak. We know people to be weak. And it may also imply that it's unexpected to the devil himself because he thinks himself to be so strong and overly confident that he has people under his control. But Jesus is saying like lightning, unexpectedly, the kingdom moves in and changes things. People get converted, hard hearts get softened. Well, and then Jesus goes on to say, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. What a statement. What does he mean by it? Well, Jesus gives, you notice, his disciples authority. And authority is distinct from power. Authority is the, is the, is the right to use that power. And so he gives them this authority as his representatives, his ambassadors in the world. So it's not limited to the 12, it extends to the 72, but we've said the 72 is symbolic of the whole church. You have that authority in this world as representatives of Jesus, ambassadors of God's kingdom in the world. I mean, it's an incredible authority that is given you. Now again, it's figurative language. So what does it mean to have authority to tread on serpents and over scorpions? So Deuteronomy 8, 15 says this about Israel in the wilderness. God says to Israel, through the great and terrifying wilderness, I led you with its fiery serpents and scorpions. Like they were defenseless. They would have died in a matter of weeks. Yet God sustained them throughout their wilderness journeyings, even when they had to deal with serpents and scorpions. It speaks of God's care and shepherding protection over you. Well, Psalm 91, 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. It's, you know, that's the psalm that starts, God is... He who shelters himself in the shadow of the Almighty. For that person, it says the Most High will protect you through the dangers of life. Ultimately, they can't harm you. But it's not just general protection, as if he keeps us safe in the world, but when he adds, especially over all the power of the enemy in a context of casting out demons, It's got to allude to Genesis 3.15, that root promise of the scripture, all the scripture is just an unpacking of that one verse, that the serpent intertwined himself into the personalities of Adam and Eve and deceived them into tanking the whole universe in sin, 
And yet God intervenes at that moment of rebellion and says there's gonna come a redeemer that's gonna crush the head of the serpent. And he's gonna recreate all things. And so Jesus is looking at his people and saying as people of the redeemer himself, that you will have that role restored to you. You can be like Adam and Eve with authority in the world, armed by my spirit, with my word, that you can have authority to counter evil and to cultivate a godly culture. And it might not look like much to the world, but my kingdom's moving in. And Matthew Henry adds that it's almost like Jesus applies the parable of the minas here. Because it's almost like he looks at them with this ongoing authority that he gives them and says, okay, you were faithful in your short-term mission trip. I'm, I have given you authority in an ongoing manner that will be an offensive authority to tread on the devil and a defensive authority that you won't ultimately get hurt by anything. And so Jesus looks at them, they're thrilled by their success, elated by what they've been able to do in the lives of hurting people. He affirms it, celebrates it, and rewards them for their labors. So what could be better than that? Well, the disciples' priority. Verse 20. Surely, with all of that that Jesus has just done, that kingdom work is to be your highest priority. What could be greater than that? And so surely the disciples, as Jesus told them all that, are, are surely glad they didn't close themselves off from following Jesus and following after those self-centered priorities of those three would-be disciples. Surely they're relieved that they chose to follow Jesus. But have the disciples... Have disciples got it right? They followed Jesus by obeying him and going out on this successful mission. And, and surely that's supposed to be their number one priority, fruitful labor for the kingdom. I mean, didn't verse two of last week, didn't we see that Jesus calls us workers? He calls us laborers. So is it number one to be useful in the lives of suffering people with the gospel? And yet in verse 20, Jesus says, no. He says, no. And it catches us off guard. We weren't expecting it after all of that. We, we, you know, it's kind of like, come again, say it again. We weren't thinking that would be his response. It's as if Jesus says, as much as I love what you've just done, as much as it gives me joy, it's not to be first for you. That success and power, even the best kind, the kind you've just experienced, can get to your head. You don't live for that. It's like I was telling the youth this morning, I've been listening, reading different little articles on Kevin Hart. This past week he gave, or a couple of weeks ago, he gave some interviews. He had an accident in 2019, almost lost his life. And, he realized through that period of time, this long rehab he had, that his first priority had been his fame. He says fame is a worse drug than any other drug out there. Opioids, 
you know, cocaine, whatever you have, it, fame is the worst because it gets to your head and it gives you a sense of power and you think you can have anything you want anytime you want it and it was wrecking his life and he didn't realize it until he had his accident and Jesus is looking at him saying, we don't live even for ministerial success and power. It can't be our first commitment. It can't be. What is your first priority? Jesus says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And doesn't that give you a sigh of relief today? That if you have one priority in your life this morning, amidst all the host of counsels we receive, that you get to come here and hear from Jesus that your first priority is that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice in what you've been given by grace. And that's what I want you to do. Rejoice in being, not so much in doing. Rejoice in who you are by my grace, not in what you do for me by my grace, by grace. It's the fact that you receive by faith, your name is enrolled in heaven. It's a word that commonly meant in the day making a list in a public register or census. That there's a list, there's a book, it's a Lamb's book of life, it's the book of life. Your name is there. If, if there's an address on your mansion in heaven, it has your name on it. And Jesus is saying, you're already a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. You already belong there. I want your first priority, please, as great as all this is, to be to affirm and to be assured of and celebrate your own salvation. I want you first to rejoice in who you are by grace through faith. I want you to rest in being a certain kind of person rather than rush out to accomplish things. You were already on my heart before I ever came in the world. Now I'm here and I will accomplish your redemption. I'm marching to Jerusalem to do it. And just see the distinction. You know, whereas Satan is falling from heaven, you know your names are enrolled in heaven. You're safe and secure there in the new heavens and the new earth as your inheritance. You have God and all good things in him. Celebrate it. Celebrate your election and your conversion and your justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification, all the big words we love, celebrate it. They're yours. That's what I want you to do. And so, it's a beautiful statement. Hyatt and Harkavy in their book, Living Forward, counsel us to live a significant life. What you need to do is write out your eulogy now how do you want to be remembered, your legacy, and then live in light of that now? It's, it's great, great counsel, great counsel. Uh, a man named Gibson writes a commentary on Ecclesiastes. It's not living forward. He says, well, it's living life backward. And so his counsel is a bit better even, and he says, okay, you want to live a significant life. According to Ecclesiastes, start with your death and standing before God and live backwards from that. Well, that's good counsel. Jesus is even better. In the day of grace, start with all your privileges that you're united to Christ and all good blessings in him. Everything you'd ever want, 
that you look for that you don't realize it and move back from there. Rest and delight in that. Is knowing and experiencing that your first priority today? Well, finally, the disciples' privilege. It moves into the disciples' privileges, and I love that from verses 21 through 24, because Jesus breaks out in prayer. And he praises and thanks God in this ecstatic prayer in the presence of the disciples. It's in, he's exclaiming in front of them. They've triggered this exuberance before the Lord. And so he rejoices in the Holy Spirit. And what he's doing for them is modeling for them what he just charged them to do. Watch me as I'm overjoyed about who I am and where I stand with my father. And maybe take some of that with you. And so Jesus rejoices in God and his place with him. And it's actually the only place in the New Testament when it actually says Jesus rejoices, right here. He does it for us. And it's so emphatic. The word is a very strong word, and it's the word, uh, it's a different word than he told the disciples. He takes it, he ratchets it up, and it's a word for being enthralled by the fulfilling of God's plan. So we see various privileges in this profound little section of scripture. And it all serves to undergird and reinforce the delight we have in the salvation we've been given. And so first, Jesus just praises God that he and us in him know God as triune. He rejoices in the Holy Spirit. He rejoices in his Father. You have this little Trinitarian thing going on that I've lifted the veil back and I've shown you God and you're brought into that mysterious, holy, incredibly deep relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then second, he praises God for his character, and the two things he picks are, he's Father, and he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's intimate with you and he's transcendent. He's the absolute ruler of everything down to the hairs of your head and he's your adoptive father in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's incalculably loving towards you and he's also immeasurably powerful. It's what you want, everything. The God who's in control is the God who is wild, full of love and grace to you. You know that. Third, he's the God of abounding grace because he describes himself as the God who hides the mystery of the gospel from the wise and the understanding. And what he means is the conceited and the arrogant, the self-sufficient, those who feel like they can work it out and sit in judgment on God and his ways. So he, he hid the gospel from them who thought they came with full hands 
to tell God how he should do things. And he says, I've revealed it to the little children, literally infants and babies who have no way to fend for themselves and are dependent and humble and have nothing to offer but their constant neediness. (laughs) It's this picture of grace that he's given you the gospel when you had nothing, you had nothing. He didn't come because you were strong and capable and qualified. He came before you were weak and needing a beggar. It's a gift. And then he says, and this is the profoundest verse here because he digs down into the inner relations of the father and the son. He calls the father my father. There's a way in which the father is his father that he's not our father. Like he's our adoptive father, but there's this, infinite relationship that we can only peer into from afar, but it, 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 it awakens this interest in us, this captivating thoughts in us that he praises his father for the deep knowledge they have of one another. This knowing, this relating, this serving, then lifting up, that no one knows you except me, and no one knows me except you, but you know what? You have given me everything I need to do what I'm doing here, and I get to give it to anyone I choose to give it to. And so we see the father and the son, they're so excited and they've been planning this for so long and they love each other so much and then this joint project and the one commentator says, the son has whatever the sinner needs. Like the father gave him whatever the sinner needs and he delights in, in giving it to you. And so if you have faith in Jesus, it means that Jesus looked at you and he chose you and gave it to you, he delights in you. And then finally, he just looks at his 12 and looks at them and says, look, many people have wanted to be experiencing what you're experiencing. They, they saw it from afar, they don't see it. They heard about it, they wrote about it, but they didn't get to live in it. You get to, blessed are you, blessed are you. What privilege you have, he's saying. You get to know that God is triune. You get to know what the Old Testament means as I come and fulfill it. You get to walk with the Redeemer who's crushing the head of the servant. You get to know the cross is coming. You're gonna see my resurrection. You're gonna know adoption, glorification, sanctification, nobody's known before. You know the same things, even more than the disciples here. Blessed are you, blessed are you. Are you acquainted with these privileges? And won't you make these your favorite? Won't they put a smile on your face today? Might they be your first priority? Might they be your number one that you get to rejoice in this? And if you're a young person here today at lunch, go home and tell your parents, I wanna see my birth certificate, or I wanna see my adoption papers. Then I want you to ask your parents, do you mean there's a document like this in heaven that has my name on it? And then if you wonder if that's the case, then say, what does that mean? What does God ask me to do? And then you get to hear your parents say, nothing. Would you receive it as a gift and trust in such a savior? And might you all be doing that today? Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a blessed word to us this morning. And we do pray. We just thank you that that's what you tell us to rejoice in. And we pray that would be a reality in our lives. And if there's anyone who doesn't know that his name is enrolled in heaven or her name is enrolled in heaven, would you bless those conversations by your spirit and bring 
the gift of faith into their life. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand.